From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Abortion is on the ballot this election. Prop 115 would restrict the procedure after 22 weeks gestation. Supporters say that's when a fetus can live outside the womb. I think most people can look and recognize, gee, that looks like a baby. But opponents say each pregnancy is different. There's not viability switch that automatically gets flipped at 22 weeks or or any gestational age for that matter. Later, a once-in-a-lifetime discovery in a Leadville Opera House, historic hand-painted sets covered in dust. There were tears when crews wiped that dust away. It was magical. It's a type of painted illusion that you don't see on stage today and haven't seen for about 100 years. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Coloradans will be asked this election whether to ban abortions after 22 weeks of pregnancy. Proposition 115 makes an exception if the life of the woman is at risk. Colorado is one of seven states that does not place limits on when a woman can get an abortion. CPR's Claire Cleveland and Andrea Dukakis have been looking into this ballot measure and welcome to both. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Uh, Claire, give us the top line here with Prop 115. Yeah, as you said, Prop 115 would ban all abortions after 22 weeks gestation, except in cases where the pregnant woman's life is threatened by her pregnancy. There are no exceptions for cases of rape or incest, or if the fetus was diagnosed with a condition that will make it incompatible with life, the ban would not penalize the pregnant woman, but it would suspend the license of the doctor who performed the procedure or attempted to. Okay, so the consequences are for the health care provider. Andrea, say more about how Colorado compares to other states when it comes to abortion restrictions. Well, you mentioned Colorado is one of about seven states that doesn't put any gestational limit on when a woman can have an abortion. I should say that after 22 weeks, abortions are very rare. They account for about 1.3% of all pregnancies that are terminated. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And the numbers of abortions keep dropping off with each week of gestation. And as we'll hear in a bit, because Colorado has less restrictive abortion laws, you have women from more restrictive states traveling to Colorado for the procedure. Okay, so the effects here could be for those beyond Colorado. Uh, Andrea, you have talked to several backers of this measure. What do they say about their opposition to abortion specifically beyond that 22-week mark? They argue that 22 weeks is the point at which a fetus can survive outside the womb. So they say abortions after 22 weeks are equivalent to ending a human life. Dr. Monica Serrano-Toy, she's a family physician in Fort Collins, and she says at 22 weeks into a pregnancy, so the middle of the second trimester, a fetus appears fully formed. Immature but fully formed. I think most people can look and recognize, gee, that's that looks like a baby. You know, we're talking about five and a half months of pregnancy. So I I think that aborting them ignores their humanity. Serrano Toy also says that at that gestation, we don't know for sure what kind of pain a fetus could feel. Now, does she say a child born as early as 22 weeks has a chance at survival? 
Dr. Serrano Toy says with today's technology and proper treatment, a fetus uh, after that 22 week mark can survive, and some babies born will grow up and even thrive. Studies show when babies are born at that point and medical intervention is used, around 40% will survive, though many with severe disabilities. Uh, a fetus at 22 weeks gestation averages about 10 ounces and about 6 inches. Dr. Serrano Toy says technology is improving those survival rates. And she also thinks at 22 weeks or beyond, women have more of a sense of closure if a pregnancy runs its course, even if a fetus has been diagnosed with a possible fatal abnormality. If you talk to people who choose to deliver those children naturally, even if they die very shortly thereafter, most people find that experience to be healing, to be able to hold the child and give it a few moments of love and care, however brief they might be. Of course, as we'll hear in a few minutes, the idea of carrying a pregnancy to the end when there's, say, a fatal fetal diagnosis can also be enormously traumatic for many women. And again, uh, Andrea, Prop 115, only making an exception if the woman's life is at risk. Now, there's the view that terminating a pregnancy because of a diagnosed birth defect after a certain point is a human rights issue, that it discounts the idea that children born with disabilities can contribute and live a good life. A woman named Nancy Kruger from Illinois talks a lot about this. She speaks to groups about her regret at having an abortion later in her pregnancy. It started when she was at a doctor's appointment at 22 weeks and was later told her baby had Down syndrome. She decided to have an abortion. At that point, she'd already named her daughter Melanie. And later, Kruger says she deeply regretted terminating the pregnancy. I remember thinking... What a not-so-perfect baby Melanie could have meant to me and my family. What she might have meant to the world, you know, how she might have helped close the gap on that twisted thinking, the one in which our present culture often uses to define what it sees as good enough to warrant keeping. But Andrea, what would his polling tell us about Americans' views overall? Polls will tell you Americans generally support abortion rights, but as a pregnancy advances through the second and third trimesters, the opposition increases. And Dr. Serrano Toy says that's why restricting abortion after 22 weeks, about midway through the second trimester, is a balanced approach. But Claire, what about the opposition? It really boils down to the unique nature of each pregnancy. Opponents argue that politicians and the legislature really have no business making decisions for women about their pregnancies. Um, But critics also dispute many of the claims made by proponents of Proposition 115, such as this idea of viability. Dr. Christina Tochi is vice president and medical director of Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. She's been a practicing obstetrician gynecologist for more than 20 years. She says this ban at its 22-week limit is arbitrary. There's not viability switch that automatically gets flipped at 22 weeks or or any gestational age for that matter because each pregnancy is unique and medical circumstances differ from patient to patient. What other claims in Prop 115 do opponents dispute? Doctors like Tochi also dispute the argument of fetal pain. The, the perception of, of pain requires um, a, a fully functional neurogenic pathway uh, and connections within that pathway. 
in addition to a mature brain cortex in order to uh, perceive pain. 22 weeks is not a medically defined gestational age where these neurologic developments are complete. The best scientific evidence available indicates that fetal perception of pain is possible at some point in the third trimester, but there's not actually a defined gestational age that can give you for this development. She says that Proposition 115, the arguments within it, are just not based in science. You spoke with a family who obtained an abortion around 22 weeks. I wonder what they had to say. Christina and Roy Taylor were pregnant with their third child in May of 2017 when they went in for their 20-week anatomy scan. Um, we got in, I got on the table, the ultrasound tech was looking at me, and she was pretty quiet. And I learned later that they can't give you a diagnosis. You have to wait for the doctor to look it over. Sure enough, um, the doctor had come in and told us that our baby had no kidneys and I had no amniotic fluid. He was just squished basically in a sort of sausage of my uterus without the aid of any fluid in there. They decided to get a second opinion. Christina had an MRI, and they found out that not only was their baby boy missing kidneys and amniotic fluid, he also didn't have a bladder. They decided that the best decision was to have an abortion. Which I understand they had performed at 21 weeks and one day. Uh, So technically, wouldn't they have been in the clear if this ban, as proposed in the ballot measure, were law? Technically, yes, but they both acknowledged how lucky they were in the process of their abortion. They are fully insured. Christina's mother flew out from Texas the moment she found out about the diagnosis to take care of their two older children. And their doctors helped them get follow-up appointments scheduled quickly. If any of those circumstances had been different, it's possible that they would have missed the 22-week mark. Um, There are two factors identified by researchers that contribute to why women wait until later in the second trimester to obtain an abortion. Yeah, what are those? Um, Well, one, they didn't have the information they needed to make a decision earlier. And two, they faced obstacles like an abortion ban in their state or the cost of the procedure was prohibitive. Erica Christensen is an abortion activist who traveled to Colorado in 2016 for a third trimester abortion. She says bans are harmful to women. I think you are allowed to feel however you personally want to about abortion. I don't expect everyone to feel the way I do about it because so few people have been in my position. But whoever you are in your life, whatever has brought you to this moment to maybe be on the fence about what what way to go with this ballot initiative, just know that bans create more harm and cruelty, and they are not the tool with which to manage your discomfort. Claire, a recent study called The Turn Away documented women who sought abortions at various stages. And what does that study tell us? Researchers chronicled the experiences of a thousand women, both those who had abortions and those who were denied them because they were past the gestational limit set in their state. The study covers five years. It found that women who were denied an abortion and had to carry to term are four times more likely to be living below the poverty line. They're more likely to experience serious complications in pregnancy, including preeclampsia and death. They suffer anxiety and loss of self-esteem in the year after being denied the abortion. And they're more likely to stay with abusive partners. 
people are experts in their own lives and they should be empowered to make their own healthcare and medical decisions because they have the most information. And the people making these decisions are moral decision makers, just as anyone else is. This ballot measure marks the fourth time Colorado voters have been asked to restrict abortion since 2008, and the first three were rejected. Andrea Dukakis, what makes advocates think this will be different? Well, of those four, this would be the first time Colorado voters are asked to prohibit abortion based on gestational age. The most recent three measures all dealt with what was called personhood. It would have defined a person to include a fetus or unborn person. Uh, I spoke with Lauren Castillo, who's with Proposition 115, the campaign, also called Due Date Too Late. And like Dr. Serrano Toy, she points to poll numbers that show Americans increasingly increasingly oppose abortion as a pregnancy progresses to the second and third trimesters. The 22-week mark was chosen because that seems to be a very sensible point at which there is common ground agreement across political lines, across cultural lines, um, you know, both sides, even pro-choicers and pro-lifers, for where people believe that abortion it becomes too extreme. Andrea, Roe v. Wade uh, was decided in 1973, and legally it divided pregnancy and abortion into three trimesters, right? Right. To try to sum it up, it said during the first trimester, the decision to end a pregnancy is up to the woman and her doctor. During the second trimester, the state could restrict abortion, but not ban it in the interest of a woman's health. It said after the second trimester, the fetus becomes viable. And the state could restrict abortion to protect that potential life unless it was necessary to preserve the life or health of the woman. And health refers to the physical and mental health of a woman. And mental health. So what does that mean about the constitutionality of Colorado's ballot measure, uh, which would restrict abortion at 22 weeks of pregnancy? Attorney General Phil Weiser says based on Roe v. Wade and other case law, he thinks Proposition 115 is unconstitutional. Roe v. Wade protects women's ability to make a choice on whether to have an abortion or not up till generally the end of the second trimester. This ban thus is within the protective zone of Roe v. Wade, and under Roe v. Wade, it's hard to see this ban being upheld. I also think this ban is in great tension and goes against the standard in Casey, which is the more recent notable decision that talks about what is an undue burden on women's autonomy and ability to control their futures. Weiser says, for example, it would be an undue burden for a woman to bear a child that's the product of rape or incest. And no doubt the issue of abortion will be front and center uh, in the confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who's been nominated to the Supreme Court. Thanks to both of you for being with us. You heard from CPR's Andrea Dukakis and Claire Cleveland on Proposition 115, which would restrict abortion in Colorado after 22 weeks of pregnancy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela. I host a podcast at CPR called Back From Broken. It's a show about recovery and comeback stories. On October the 8th, we're taping a special live episode, and you can join us wherever you are. We'll meet Iraq War veteran John Evans and hear the story of his military service and his amazing recovery from alcoholism and PTSD. Details at CPR.org slash homefront. 
Made possible in part by CU Anschutz. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It is still possible to find hidden treasures. One's been found in Leadville at the Tabor Opera House, which opened in 1879. The posh theater stood as a beacon in the rowdy mining town. Well, this month, historic stage scenery specialist Wendy Ray Wassett Barrett has been clearing coal dust and bat guano from what she calls the most significant collection of painted sets in North America. Historians around the world are paying attention. And in a conversation you'll hear only on CPR News, Wasit Barrett joined me by phone from Leadville. Wendy, thank you for being with us. Thank you. I understand that you were at the Opera House mere moments ago, but you had to get back and take a shower. You were covered in dust, soots, is that right? (laughs) Soot from 100 years in the attic. Um, (laughs) I literally ran home, took a quick shower, and then got all set up. Otherwise, I would have been at the table. Today was a particularly dirty day. Well, no pun intended here, but I do want you to set the scene for us over at the Tabor. It's a 140-year-old opera house, and you were there surrounded by hundreds of pieces of painted scenery. And I understand that these were the backdrop to performances by the likes of Oscar Wilde, Buffalo Bill, John Philip Sousa. How does it feel to be there? It's stepping back in time. We are both working on the stage and at the third and a half floor, which is the attic. And when the Tabor Opera House was purchased by the Elks and renovated, they completely enlarged the stage and added a fly space, meaning the scenery could go up and down. Previously, in the 1879 Tabor Opera House, they used wings and shutters. And shutters are like two barn doors that slide together to form a scene. And the wings are on the side to help create the illusion of depth on stage. When the Opera House stage was enlarged, the shutters no longer worked with the new system. And all of the original scenery before 1900 was chucked into the attic, some of it carefully placed, some of it not so carefully placed, some of it repurposed. And there it sat from 1902 until today when it was lowered to a stage floor for the first time. And some preliminary cleaning of the pieces was done because it's a century of dust and pigeon droppings and little particles and everything you can imagine on top of it. And we carefully lowered it over 40 feet to the stage floor through a series of pulleys and lots of manpower. And even though we did a preliminary dusting to minimize the loose particulates that would go in the air, handling it still is quite disgusting. <laughs> right, right. I'm thinking of, of your breath in addition to like the, the state of your hands right now after handling all this stuff. What is it like to, I don't know if it is to brush off or clean off or wipe off that kind of cake, caking, and see what's underneath. It is seeing a visual aesthetic that united the American people across the continent, regardless of socioeconomic status, gender, region. It was the same type of painting that was seen at Grand Circus Spectacles by Al Ringling or at Luna Park by Fred Thompson or on Broadway or in California, or small little opera houses in Kansas City. It was a shared visual aesthetic. And to be able to see something that hasn't been seen for 100 years and put those pieces together. So it's one thing to uncover the dust. 
but it's another to put the puzzle back together and reassemble a setting that simply hasn't been seen for generations. Literally, when the when the first shutters hit the floor, I, I teared up because it was magical. It's a type of painted illusion that you don't see on stage today and haven't seen for about 100 years. This would have been a kind of core of traveling artists or artists around the country who would have done this kind of work? That's correct. So the Tabor Opera House does not just have one scenery collection. Scenery was delivered at various points in time when it opened in 1879. Then in 1888, a traveling artist who later became a well-known theater architect, Frank Cox, stopped by the Tabor and delivered an entire set of stock scenery. And then in 1890, another set was delivered. And then all of that was tucked into the attic. And in 1902, the Kansas City Scenic Company and the Sossman and Landis Scene Painting Studios out of Chicago delivered more scenery. Um, That was for the new stage house. And what is remarkable is it's not a question of did this artist do it? Some of the pieces are signed, especially by Frank Cox, who was the traveling artist. He traveled from New York to Colorado, went from town to town painting scenery, but he was also a performer. He was known as a lightning artist or tramp artist. And in the evening at the theater, he would do a series of about 50 caricatures. When he was in Leadville, some of the caricatures that he did were on the back of the scenery. So he not only signed and dated a couple of pieces, but he did a couple of caricatures of himself And what we're guessing is either a theater manager or a local citizen. So to have that in a person who becomes a well-known theater architect, and this is at the beginning of his career, is really quite exciting. What a cool guy. I mean, like, yeah, you just think, gosh, I wish I had one iota of that talent. So you used an interesting term, which was stock scenery. The pieces that you've been going through are kind of fitted together to turn a blank stage into forests and gardens and rustic country cottages, a manor, a prison cell. And so I suppose in a way like a theater would have stock costumes that could be rolled out for different shows, the same was true of scenery. Correct. So let's say you had a star that was traveling from stage to stage. You would plan your tour based on the theaters, and there were theatrical guides that would help touring companies know exactly what was at each theater. So the size of the stage, how many tickets you could sell, where you would want to lodge, and you would be able to contact them to understand what scenes they had. Hmm. And if they didn't have a particular scene and they happened to have a scenic artist at the theater, that scene might be added. So the stock scenes would range just standard settings, like you said, a prison, a seascape, which was a horizon scene, a fancy interior, possibly a kitchen scene, a rustic scene, a Rocky Mountain Pass, a forest scene. It runs the gamut so that you could drop in that scene for whatever show you were doing. After some time around the turn of the century, the companies began traveling with their own scenery. Was there a diversity uh, within the scenic painters, or was it all white dudes? There was very much diversity. But as I was explaining this week, if you're running a scenic studio and you are hiring women in particular, 
you don't necessarily need to advertise that fact. If you are in a very conservative area, Hmm. having women on your staff isn't anything that you would mention, but they do appear in the paper. There are various mentions of scenic artists who were women from from really the 1880s on that I've located, some who had their own studios as panorama painters, others who were single mothers who left and went to New York and did quite well. It is fascinating, but they are not part of the history that we are taught. Marianne Graham, the president of the Tabor Opera House Preservation Foundation, was there for the magic of uncovering these, I mean, they're really illusions, uh, including apparently a set that depicts a faux red curtain. As I pulled this vacuum over that, the beautiful scarlet color just shone out of that. So it was really a treat, you know, and and everybody's ooing and eyeing (laughs) as we... (laughs) get the dust taken off of these things and really see them. Well, this treasure trove of stage sets has been cleaned and cataloged, and Marianne Graham says that her board has to decide what to do with them. We're just now finding out what we actually have. I think they're a great resource for historic theater, and we hope to use them and display them in some manner. So can I assume, Wendy, that you don't want these pieces to go back into the attic? Like, do you want to see them used again? Well, that is the purpose of scenery is to be seen. Um, (laughs) No, you don't want to tuck them back in the, the attic because it's, you know, out of sight, out of mind. The scope of the collection is probably, well, definitely the largest in North America. Wow. Um, It is around 250 pieces. Ranging, as I said, from 1879 until 1902. There are large theater collections in museums or in different depositories, but not in the original building that they were delivered to. Hmm. So that's what really makes the collection remarkable, not only for theater artists, but fine artists, because the people who painted stage scenery did not just get a design and paint it. Scenic artists in the 19th century were the masters of scenic illusion. So it ties into a lot of fine art training. Many scenic artists were members of the Selma Gundy Club in New York or the Rochester Art Club, the Chicago Institute of Arts in Chicago, the Palette and Chisel Club, or various art associations in Taos or California or the Pacific Northwest. They were constantly honing their artistic skill. So it's not that their stage settings were ever less than their fine art. They were exploring color and composition and brushstroke in a very large scale. And so the Tabor Opera House doesn't just have old scenery. They have really large-scale artworks by internationally known artists. Finally, how many other collections like this do you think might be gathering dust, layers and layers of it, waiting for you to, you know, uncover? All across the country, just not at this scope. So the theaters that managed to not burn down did not get gutted or become completely deteriorated so they were, you know, mowed down. In the attic, pieces are tucked away. It really is dependent upon the stewards who inherit the theater and any scenery that's in it. If the theater scenery managed to survive the rise of cinemas, 
when many places, vaudeville houses, were turned into um, movie houses. Yeah, they got kind of cut up sometimes. Right. That was one thing. If they survived the 1980s when many of the theaters were also gutted, that's pretty remarkable. There are pieces tucked away here and there, sometimes small collections, but nothing like this. This is a scale that should get world attention. Thank you so much for sharing your work and your passion with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks again so much for asking. Wendy Ray Wassett Barrett specializes in historic stage scenery, and she told us about her once-in-a-lifetime experience in Leadville, where a vast collection of sets has been moldering for a century. At CPR.org, there are photos of this theatrical treasure trove. And that is listener-supported Colorado Matters for today. If we are your candle on the water, I hope you'll support us. CPR.org or krcc.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.